But it's, it's easy for us to forget. So I think when we're looking at the message today, I think we're going to be able to relate. But have you ever been on the receiving end of someone forgetting? I told you my story, what, about two weeks ago about, being, about as a kid being forgotten on our vacation. We were in Rhode Island, and I just took a nap on the, my aunt's couch, and my family just left. My family just left. Took a while for my mom to convince my dad to turn around, but he did. Appreciate that. But uh, no, they had forgotten. And so they came back. They got me. That's right. I didn't have to. Anyway, I was grateful that they, they did come back. I really am. But, you know, parents sometimes can forget to pick up their kids from practice, you know, after school. Oh, you know, you get a phone call. Yeah, are you picking me up, Mom or Dad? Oh, you know, we, we can forget. We can forget about birthdays, anniversaries, ouch. The question, though, is how do you feel when you're on the receiving end of that? Does it make you feel left out, hurt, rejected even? Maybe even it puts you in a situation where you're filled now with fear. Do you feel alone or lonely? As we look at our passage this evening, this is how Israel felt. And Isaiah takes chapter 40 to the end of chapter 66 to talk about how God has chosen not to forget Israel. He didn't just leave them in captivity, but he called them once again back to their homeland. But we're going to be looking at this because it's really at the heart of what this passage is about. Now, the last two weeks, we've looked at the Messiah, prophecies concerning the Messiah. Now, the Messiah, so to speak, is in the driver's seat. He's the one asking the questions. He is the one who goes by the name Yahweh in this passage. And now he is asking questions, and he is giving truth to his beloved, to Israel, to Zion. Last week, we looked at this idea. It says, say to the, you see there in verse 9? Actually, let me do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up to verse 8, and I'm just going to read through all the way to the end of the chapter, okay? Because this is, now God, he is calling his people out of exile to himself, and he promises, I have not forsaken you, and I have not forgotten you. God understands what that's like. Jesus on the cross himself called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22.1. But the father and the son in that very moment in which Jesus, so to speak, became sin for us, the father left his presence. The presence of the man Jesus dying on that cross. That's something that just kind of blows my mind. But Jesus was so identified with sin that the father left him and abandoned him on the cross to suffer hell and separation from God for us. Man, that just, when you really think about it, it begins to blow your mind. But God has not abandoned Israel. So I'm going to start with verse 8. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. You remember, I've read some of this to you last week. This is what the Lord, this is what Yahweh says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. Remember, you would be with a capital Y because it's referring to the Messiah here. And in the day of salvation, 
I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free, or in essence, step into the light. Reveal yourself, we learn. Continues on, here we go. They will feed beside the roads. Who is that? That is the captives and those who were in darkness. It's a picture of them in exile, in captivity, in that land of darkness, so to speak, now coming back. We'll see that more as we read on. They'll feed by the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my roads into, excuse me, I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, from the north and from the west and from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are ever before me. Your sons hasten back and those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather and come to you. As surely as that, remember he's speaking to Zion at this point. And this, the exile now coming back. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all like garments. Excuse me, ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. Though you were ruined and made desolate, and your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people, and those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during, during your bereavement will, will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, who, who bore these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone, but these, where have they come from? This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes. Captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then 
all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, forgive me, I don't want to start at the beginning. I want to start right there in the middle. I want you to look at verse 15. Excuse me, verse 14, sorry. And it says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Who is Zion here? And why do they feel forgotten? Understand, this is how they feel It is not the fact. God didn't forget them. God actually had to exile them because of their sin. But who is Zion? Is Zion you? Does does God punish like this? His, His people, his church? Who is Zion? We need to understand that this is from an Old Covenant or Old Testament perspective. When you read Romans chapter 9, you begin to see a little bit of a clearer picture. See, Zion is the people of God, or they are the nation of Israel. It's it's a personification. Zion represents Israel. But let's understand something here. All Israelites, that is ethnic Israel, they were born into that nation. They were born and after eight days circumcised and thereby brought into this covenant. Now, that did not mean that they were saved, but that they were actually now engaging in a covenant with God. Circumcision was that sign of that covenant with Israel to eventually point to them having a relationship by faith, just like Abraham. No difference here. But by faith, now enter into this relationship with God so that just like Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, not his own righteousness, but faith did this, so God would do that for us, okay? So what we have here is that we have a covenant with an entire nation, with ethnic Israel, but then Paul in Romans 9 says, is all Israel Israel? In other words, is all of ethnic Israel truly the people of God? And his answer is no. And he begins to prove that in Romans chapter 9. There is, an, there is an ethnic Israel, and then there is a spiritual Israel, if you will. There is a physical Israel, and there's a spiritual Israel. There's a physical circumcision, but there is a spiritual circumcision. That is a circumcision of the heart. And everyone, by the way, can have their heart circumcised, not just guys. So you get this physical and spiritual aspect in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, circumcision is completely done away with. What remains is only the spiritual. So follow me now. Zion then represents ethnic Israel with looking ahead to spiritual Israel after the exile. That is a metaphor then of The new covenant in which we come out of darkness and now we come into the kingdom of God. And many times spiritual Israel in Romans 9 through 11 is called the remnant. Elect by grace. So when we're talking about Zion, in a sense we're talking about unsaved Israel. 
abandoned, if you will, in captivity, but only for a specific amount of time. So is that you? I would only say that was you. If you're a Christian today, that was you. That would be a metaphor. Zion would be a metaphor for you, but it looks ahead because it still uses the term Zion to talk about the true people of God. So again, this is in the Old Covenant, and it Zion represents both ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. But in the New Covenant that it's pointing to, we now are Zion. The, the term Zion throughout the New Testament, when it refers you know, not in the Gospels, but in the, the epistles of Paul and the like, always refers to spiritual Israel. That is, true believers in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles. Do you follow me? So in the Old Covenant, there were kind of two levels of election or God choosing. National election, a little bit different than what we had just the other week, and, and individual election. In the New Covenant, it's just individual election. Because Jesus, in John 1, Jesus came unto his own and his own didn't receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And that is what we are. And he goes on to say, see, it's not by your descent. It's not by your bloodline. It's not because you were ethnic Israel, but you are now born of God. Physically born, but now in this new covenant, spiritually born. So do you see this? So when we're talking about Zion... We would be talking maybe about you before you came to Christ with the thought that you would come to Christ. Because sometimes it refers to just ethnic Israel and sometimes it sees beyond that in Isaiah to what the people of God would be. By the way, did you realize that in the New Testament, not one time, not one time is Israel ever called the people of God or my people in the New Covenant? Not one time. It's because in Romans 11, we're told that Israel has been grafted out of the olive tree. And only those who believe in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, are now grafted in to that fig tree. Only the church, only true believers in Jesus are ever called the people of God in the new covenant. So it's fair, both when Paul uses the idea of Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem or Zion, Hebrews 12, that type of Zion, heaven, spiritual Zion, Zion then does refer to us after we come to, come to Christ. So where am I going with this? Many people can feel as if God has truly abandoned them. That because Zion can refer both to the physical people, but also a spiritual people, I want you to fit yourself in here. Because there are times even when we, as Zion, spiritual Zion, can feel abandoned by God. You can go through struggles and trials in your life. And sometimes it's one thing after the other, and you should be going, God, what is going, are you against me? Did I do something wrong? Did I hurt your feelings somehow? And we get angry. We get fearful because we're wondering, you know, the other shoe's going to drop any day now. We can feel left out. We're wondering, God, where are you when it comes to our finances? Others seem to be prospering. Others seem to be making it. So why not me, God? Did you just decide to kick me to the curb? What did I do to deserve this? We can feel this way, church. 
I have felt this way. I could be redundant and ask for a show of hands, but if we're all honest, all of us would put our hands up. How about breakthrough? And it's great. I encourage testimonies about how God has blessed you financially and how God has given you breakthrough in, in so many different levels. But what happens, though, when you feel like, well, everybody's having breakthrough but me? And you're wondering, God, did you forget me? I mean, I, I hope I'm next, but wow, it's really been a long time. How about a career mobility? It's easy for, for others, it seems, to get that promotion. But this is now the third time I've been overlooked. And no, as the pastor of your church, I'm not looking for a promotion, okay? I'm even a bit afraid what that would look like, okay? Because I can only imagine heaven. But anyway, how about personal growth? Others seem to be growing, and you feel like you're stagnating and you're frustrated. God, have you forgotten me? Is your grace able to reach everybody else but me? Like, like what's going on here? We can feel this way. That's the operative word, isn't it? We can feel this way. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. And this is, what, this is how God responds. He, in essence, says, I hear what you're saying. I understand this is how you feel. But now I need to give you the truth. God understands. Even David went through this. God, I feel like you've abandoned me, or I feel like you've left me by myself, left me alone. But then he comes back to the truth. And what is the truth here, church? Let me read it to you once again. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Do you feel forgotten? That is a misperception of God. God gets it. You feel that way. But that's not the truth. So what are you going to meditate on? When you put your head on the pillow at night, are you going to feel abandoned? Are you going to continue to think about how everything lines up? Yep, forgotten. Or are you going to settle on the truth of what God's word says? And he goes on and he says, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Walls referring to Zion Ramah. So what is he getting at here? <laughs> A nursing mother. Excuse me. Now, I have never nursed a baby. That is not a newsflash. You all know this. But my wife has. And she has loved just having, we've had five children. She, she's loved nursing the children. And she, it, there's something about nursing children. So I'm not going to speak from firsthand. I'm going to speak from what I have read and what my wife has shared. But when a mother nurses, there is a bond that takes place between mother and baby. And actually, physiologically, there is a chemical that is released in the mother when she nurses. And it actually bonds her to her baby. That chemical can also knock her out and make her fall asleep sometimes. But there is this bond then that takes place between that nursing mother and the baby. But most particularly, the mother to the baby. Okay? So my goodness, how on earth 
can a mother ever forget their baby, their child? Now, dads, sometimes we can leave them in stores, right? Sorry, that's a personal experience that I once had that was completely frightening for me, and God was so gracious in that, because I did leave one of our children in a store. Ah, I'm not going to go there. Too traumatic. Yep. My daughter got over it. No, she was, <laughs> she was too young to remember. But a nursing mother would never forget her. There is that bond. And it, but even if she could, God is saying, even if she could, I never will. I never will. Never, ever, 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 ever forget you. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of this, church. How am I feeling right now? The truth is, how you're feeling is irrelevant. What is relevant is the truth. And sometimes, you know, that's, that's how we deal with it. Now, can I just, I shared this at Thanksgiving in the morning with my family. And I said, you know what? I am, you know what I'm really good at? I am really good when I'm facing a struggle or something that just hurts. There, I have a switch, and, and many people like you flip the switch and you shut down emotionally. Now, not completely. It's not like I, I never feel things that are hurtful. I do. But when it starts getting intense, I, I flip that switch. Doctors, many nurses are that way. When they have a patient that's coding, they flip that switch. They disconnect emotionally as much as they can, and they operate in, like, overdrive. And, you know, the doctors, you got to do this, got to do this, you know code and, and you know, they, they operate that way. And I realize I, I can do that. But can I just tell you this? And if this is you, that when you experience something that's hurtful, you just shut down, that the Bible never says that's the answer to how you deal with it. It never says it. You know what the answer is? So two days, Thanksgiving morning, I was sharing this. What do you think the answer is? I realize that the answer has got to be praise. Always praise. It's not shutting down emotions. Now, I don't want my emotions to lead me. I want to lead my emotions, but not by shutting down emotionally. And that might make it a little easier, I suppose. But the truth is, we overcome this feeling of being forgotten with truth and declaring that truth. This is who you are, God. This is what you have done in my life. Not one time did God ever abandon Israel, even in the captivity. Seventy years, and that was it. Even Jeremiah prophesied it would only be 70 years. He was the prophet that was stayed in Israel. Ezekiel and Daniel, they went into captivity. Jeremiah encouraged, hey, it's only 70 years, guys, only 70 years. In Daniel 9, Daniel appeals to the Lord because he remembers that prophecy of, De of Jeremiah and says, Lord, it's only 70 years and we're coming down to that. It's ticking. And he begins to intercede on behalf of Israel. 70 years, that was it. And so God, even though he left them so that these people who had committed idolatry over and over again and in their fabric of who they were as a people, there was something absolutely rotten God needed to extract that and bring out of Babylon now a remnant, a people who truly knew how to return to the Lord. Isaiah 10, write that down. 
Isaiah 10, 20 to 22. That's that's actually quoted in Daniel, excuse me, in Romans chapter 9. But that is a picture of the remnant, the true believers in Jesus, uh, in in the Lord coming back. (coughs) So God would never forget it and praise, declaring truth. And not just because, well, that's what good Christians are supposed to do. No, believing, truly believing the truth that you're declaring. When we're singing here tonight, we're declaring truth and we're praising God for who he is and what he has done. Do you believe it, church? When you're singing it, do you believe it? Do you believe that the very nature of God is to restore? Because we sung a song about that tonight. That's his nature. That's just who he is. That's just what he does. And he's really good at it, by the way. So I'm going to encourage you. That's the key. Praise. Not just shutting down emotionally. I'm not opposed to that. But that's not the answer. The answer truly is praise. Declaring truth. God has not forgotten me. So by the end of the sermon, I'm expecting someone to come up with a praise song about that. Okay, just saying. All right. The second thing he says is, and this is so interesting. He says, see, <clears throat> I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. He didn't say I took a, a, a pen and I scribbled your name on my hand. He says, I engraved you on the palms of my hand. What an odd expression. Okay? Please don't ever try to engrave something on your hands. That's not what he's talking about, okay? So this is such an unusual concept. We need to break it down. Why does he say engraved? And what's the big deal about the palms of his hands? Let me answer those two questions for you. Engraving. When you wanted something permanent, you didn't scribble with a pen. You engraved it on a rock, on a stone. The Ten Commandments were engraved by the fingers of God. The stones, that the 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate, this square thing of gold, 12 stones, each stone was of a different kind, and it had one name of a tribe of Israel on that stone. All over, 12 stones with 12 names engraved. And it says this, They were to be engraved like a seal. Do you know what a seal does? A seal marks ownership. It marks ownership. When you want, when you wanting to send something to someone with, when there was wax, you would put your seal or your signet ring. You would seal it with your seal. Hey, this is me, guaranteed. My name is on it. <clears throat> when you brand, that's a kind of engraving, but it's in hide. When you brand, that's your that's the owner's mark of ownership on that cattle or whatever creature. When God engraves us on his hand, there is this sense of permanence. You can't scribble it out. It doesn't come off. It's a It's right there before him, and there's this sense of, I've got you. I will never forget you. It's permanent. 
The other thing in which something was engraved on were the two stones, the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly how they worked. Probably one got warmer than the other. And so he would reach under his breastplate or or under any cloak he had, and he would put, the priest would put his hand on the Urim and the Thummim, and whichever one, one would be warm for yes, and one would be warm for no. And that's the best way, just because of some, some examples of how it was used uh, in the Old Testament. Regardless, on each of those onyx stones, were each of them had the six names of Israel. Six names of the tribes of Israel and the other six names on the other stones. Engraved permanently. But there's also this sense of covering in which it's engraved. And that's why in the covenant God made with Israel, it was engraved. All Ten Commandments engraved in stone permanently. Why in the palms of the hand? Now, I will have to confess, there is something attractive, though I certainly can't prove it from the scriptures. There's something attractive about the idea that on Jesus' hands were the nail wounds. I'm not saying that that's what this is talking about. But it certainly was through the cross that this even means anything to us. So I I think that the two things that I do know for sure from Scripture as far as why it's on the palms of the hand is because, number one, the hand represented power. Remember, especially during the uh, Exodus, when Moses parted the Red Sea, he took the staff of God in his hand hand and held it up many times he would just stick out his hand and it represented the outstretched hand of God and that was the power of God to do miracles you are engraved on the palms of God's hand in which there are regularly access to miracles the miraculous power of God And he can do anything to rescue us. He can reach his hand out to Babylon and bring in the exiles. The other thing is this very fact of with the hand we grasp and hold on to. John 10 verse 28 says this. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. This idea of God holding us and holding us fast. That's you in the palm of God. That's your name on the palms of his hand, both of them, okay? It's not like your first name's on one hand and your last name's on the other. You're on both palms, guys. Your name's right there. God must have super big hands because all of y'all's names are on it, right there before him. It's more than just Zach when he was drumming, he would write the songs out just so he wouldn't forget. You're on both of his palms, And eventually, Zach had to wash that off, right? You'll never come off. He's got you. He will never, ever, ever forget you. I want to back up now to the very beginning. Now that we understand this idea of when God brings us as captives out of darkness, which is what verse 9, the very beginning, talked about, Then he says, here's what I'm going to do. And what he basically says is this, over the next couple of verses from verse 9 on. He says, I'm going to be your provision. I'm going to give you constant provision. I didn't just call you out to leave you there. 
just like he did with Israel when he called them out of Egypt, he didn't just leave them in the wilderness. He didn't just leave them for Pharaoh and and his army to destroy them. Even though they felt that way, they said, what did God do? Did he bring us out into the desert just to die here at the hand of Pharaoh? Why didn't he just do that in in, in Egypt? Why did he have to bring us out here to get killed? And they complained, and God said one of these, one of these lines, Moses, you know what, stick out your hand with the, with the staff in it over the sea, and I'm going to part it. And God did a miracle by his hand. God's provision. It says here, beside the roads, you know, to create a road, you would scrape the ground level, and you would toss it to the side, so nothing grew on the side of the road. But in the kingdom of God, even though you would expect that to be where there is no provision, God is going to provide. If you are feeling as if right now your life is on the side of the road, there is provision. He says, guess what? Where else is provision? On the barren hills. Just like my backyard. My backyard, there's lots of weeds, but there's like no grass. To me, that's barren. I would rather just torch it, right? But the tr- I can't do that. But the truth is, some of us, we feel as if, yeah, that, that's, that's my land. That's my hill. My hill. Oh, that's my, that's, that's my Curtis's hill. It's, it's the barren hill. It's the one that where it's, there's no grass to grow, to feed on. Understand, he is moving into this metaphor of a shepherd and a sheep. Okay? And he's calling them out of exile. Just as God called you out of darkness, called you out of captivity. He has such a good plan for you. He didn't call you out to just leave you. He called you out to constantly provide for you. And let me just tell you this. How God generally provides, he he, he can do that just on a daily basis. And we pray, God, give me my daily bread. But sometimes there's not that provision. And, and, And it's not just with food, but it's a variety of things. And I'm just, okay, God. This is the need, and I this need needs to be met. Are you going to come through? When are you going to? And I'll just keep praying and keep praying and keep, and I'll work. I'll try and find how can, whether it's finances, what can we do to make this work? And so many times coming to the very end, just saying, okay, God, I've done everything that I can do, and there is nothing. There is no breakthrough financially. And it forces me to lean on him to the extent, sometimes I'm in tears, and I'm just saying, God, I need to see you come through. And this is the beauty of it, church. God's grace comes to the humble. God's grace generally shows up when you have finally come to the end of yourself, and you just say, you know what? I serve an impossible God. I serve a God that does the impossible, and that is the perfect description of where I'm at right now. I can't do this. But God's grace is enough. So if you feel forgotten and you're just wondering, God, where are you? Where's the provision? Where's the promotion? Where's the this? Where's the healing of this relationship? I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can. And I just don't know of anything else that I, anything else that I can do. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been to the end of yourself? You are then in the perfect setting for God to give you breakthrough. As you completely, truly lean upon him. That is true. Because my Bible tells me that God's grace is more than enough. It is sufficient. 
He never runs out. He never forgets. This is truth. You know, there are times in which we will feel like we, or, or rather the author of the poem Footprints, wrote it when they saw my life situation. You're familiar with the poem. And we look down and we say, God, what's up with this? I see one set of footprints in the sand. Why did you leave me? Did you forget me? And the truth is, no, he did not. And you remember in the poem, he says to that person, he says, do you see that one set of footprints? That's not what I left you. See, that's where I put you. And maybe right now, that's exactly what you need to let God do. Can you allow him to do that? Can you allow him to do that? The last section here, and I'm not going to go through it. I'm only going to touch on a few thoughts on it. If you remember me preaching about the barren woman in Isaiah 54, this is, the, this is looking ahead to that. In which it says, open wide your tent curtains, lengthen your cords. And basically that the descendants of the barren woman, that is the exiled Zion, will produce something far greater than Israel before them. God's goal is not just to give us provision, but now to give us vision. What's God going to do? If God has truly not forgotten me, then that means he's going to provide, but he also wants to use you, and he even wants to use your grace stories in other people's lives. Now this talks about expansion. It's talking about bringing them out of Babylon, and he's bringing them now into the land, and eventually they say, well, the, the land is too small. Zion is just too small. So much rich truth found in that, that even Zechariah, he's, he sees a picture of, of Jerusalem without walls, and it's just a wall of fire in God's protection. There's no walls because that Jerusalem is the church, and it's just going to expand and expand and expand and fill the earth. But this is, this is the idea that he is giving them. God doesn't just want you to say, I'm good for your today. I'm good for your daily bread. That is true, but he's, he's in essence saying, I'm good for your future too. I'm good for whatever is that I have so richly planned for you. And when he, he gets into this, he, he says, you know, now in verse 19, now you will be too small for your people. You were ruined, you were desolate, Jerusalem was destroyed. But it's this idea, I guess because it's the nature of God, to restore. But he doesn't just want to restore and leave you there. He wants to restore you to something that is beyond imagination better. Can you believe that? As you're looking at your life, can you believe that God has something so much better for you, in you, transforming you. He's not done with you yet. Do you believe that he has something so much better for you as you keep and continue walking with him? It even says that 
in, in verse 22, see, I will beckon to the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles will be involved in this great plan of God. And even the Gentiles, perhaps as missionaries, will in essence bring some of these ethnic Jews to Christ. But it's going to be expansive and it's going to reach out. And then he says, and then I'm going to take care of your enemies. Do you see that there in verse 25? And I want to just spend a few minutes on this. I will contend with those who contend with you, and your children I will save. Just two very quick things about that. In this thing, this vision that God has for you, he's going to make a way in the desert where there seems to be no way yet. He's going to give you vision, not just provision. And that's going to mean not only is God going to use you, but he's going to do something about your enemies. Number one, let's understand this, and it's so prevalent in the book of Isaiah, we need to understand that God has this thing called redemptive judgment. We see that actually in the book of Revelation, when I preach through at least the very beginning of Revelation, but this thing called redemptive judgment. When there are enemies of the church, and can I just say, I was one of those, okay? I was one of those. I didn't realize it, but I was one of those. Saul, definitely an enemy of the church. What did God do? God's redemptive judgment, his desire is to take people who are opposing him, opposing his church, and he wants to bring them low so that he can bring them high. He wants to bring them down and for Saul, literally knocking him to the ground so that he can get up and serve the Lord. I had to be knocked down. I had to be brought low. I had to realize that apart from Jesus, my life was nothing. Apart from him, I could do nothing. I had to realize this. Sometimes the only way for us to realize truth is to go through those hard times and experience them for him to bring us up. And as the psalm says, set us on a rock. And so God, to deal with his enemies, will bring this sense of judgment. Many times, did you realize that Korea, when that went through all of that turmoil in the 1950s, missionaries went to Korea, and God was already at work in Korea, by the way. But as the missionaries went in, the nation, north and south, especially the south, of course, because they were open to missionaries, but they began to experience revival like you wouldn't believe. They have some of the largest churches in the world in that small country of South Korea, in which there's tens, if not hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands in churches. I'm not, not, not that you know the numbers in a church mean anything, so let me just say it this way. Millions have come to Christ. Millions have come to Christ because God brought that nation down. His redemptive judgment. Maybe you've experienced some of that in which God had to take you through hard circumstances to get your attention, to bring you to that point where you are now surrendered to Christ. But what happens when we don't respond? Let me just tell you this. God will pursue enemies of Christ. God will pursue them and pursue them and pursue them. But there comes a point in which their hardness of heart, they just consistently resist God. And let me just tell you this, if you have ever envied the rich, 
ever envied those who have what you would like to have, but they don't follow Jesus. Trust me, they are in the midst of God's judgment, whether you can see that or not. There is a corruption that's in their homes, in their families. Do you realize that perhaps the most messed up people in all the world live in California? That is in Hollywood? Man, when you look at the child movie stars and you just think, man, they made it so big. Yeah, and when they became teenagers or moving into the late teenage years, almost all of them turned to drugs and alcohol. And why is that? Because everything that the world offers is nothing. It does not feel one bit of void in your life. If it does, it is so temporary. And then it's empty. And that's what the world is experiencing, so much emptiness. And God would bring his judgment, if you will, upon them to bring them to himself. So as, as we're wrapping it up right now, let me just tell you this, that God was willing to work on your behalf. You were like Israel in Egypt. You were like Israel in the exile in Babylon, in bondage, in slavery. And he brought you out with his mighty hand. He engraved you on the palm of his hand. He will never forget you. You will always be on his mind. He will always have good plans for you as long as you're willing to submit to those plans. Because church, I'm going to tell you right now, some of those plans are really that's not the exciting news we ever want to hear a preacher preach. Guess what? Your life is going to be hard. Woohoo! Yes. But can I just tell you that in the hardness of that trial, that you have the ability by God's grace to enter every trial with total joy. You realize that? And it's not by shutting down emotionally. It's by praising God and submitting to his will. That is what faith is all about. That is what the Christian life is all about. God bringing you through these trials, these difficulties, and allowing you to sometimes stand on the mountaintops and say, man, look what God did. And to allow us to rejoice in that, but even in the valleys, to still rejoice. Even when hard times come, still rejoice. Even when there is, and I love the Habakkuk chapter 3 where he, he basically says, I looked in my cupboard and there wasn't anything, but I'm still going to praise him. Church, this is, this is our privilege. And no, life is not always super hard. It's not. If you're wondering if it was, I'm just going to tell you, no, it's not always super hard. But is it hard? Yes, it is. It just is. And God, in those moments, brought so much to pour out his grace. Why? Because you are his beloved. Engraved on the palm of his hand. He will... He will not let you go. He will hold on to you if you will allow him to. Amen. Can you stand with me? So here's what I'd like you to do. In the palm of your hand, so to speak, I want you to just place that struggle that you're going through right now. Maybe some of these lies that you've caught yourself saying, like, God has abandoned me, or I'm all alone. Why has he forgotten me? 
Why does he always seem to bless this person? When is it ever going to be my turn? These are real everyday feelings. To take them in the palms of your hands and say, Father, with these struggles and these feelings in our hands, God, we lift them up to you. Many of them, Lord, are just lies. And I'm just, we're offering them up to you and I'm asking you, Lord, exchange them for truth. Exchange them, God, for a vision of who you truly are. Not the lies that the devil keeps whispering in our ears. And I'm just asking you, God, with that truth, comfort us. Does that truth allow us to walk in your truth, allow us to walk in your wisdom, in your love. We're just submitted to you right now, desperately clinging on to you. And I just pray over every single one of us, God, that as we are coming to the end of ourselves, that you would show us, show to, reveal to us the mighty God that you truly are. Show us your love. Show us the extent of that love, God. Show us your power. God, I ask that you would even show us that you have not forgotten us. That we are not alone. And so, Father, right now, thank you throughout this year for how you've provided. I may be in lack right now, but you have provided in the past. I'm going to Father, thank you for what you have done in our businesses this past year. Thank you for the breakthroughs that we've experienced. Maybe right now that's not the case, but I'm going to trust you for the future. Father, thank you for friends and family that you have gathered around us. Thank you for their love. Thank you for how they prayed for us. Thank you, Father, for how they have just encouraged us. Maybe right now we don't feel that. But I'm going to make a choice to praise you that you're going to do that in the future. I just ask you, Lord, as we lift up these feelings, and many of them are just lies, Lord. Put truth down in our hands and cleanse us. You're the God that will never leave us or forsake us. And when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that truly was in the sand. And if you have to do that right now, for that reason, show us your grace and your love. Thank you, Father. We submit all of this to you, Father. Covenant God.